0: visit iConnections.io. 1982, I stepped foot into my dorm room and I met my college roommate. His name was John Lyons, John Kevin Lyons, a musician from Mequon, Wisconsin, and brought with him a number of albums, some of which I had never seen. And one of the albums was from a Canadian group called April Wine. And the hit song on that album, Danny Moses, was Just Between You and Me. I know that our love was meant to be. And I got to tell you something. As we sit here today, this podcast, young man, is just between you and me as Danny Nathan is
1: traveling. How are you, Danny Moses? I'm good, buddy. By the way, a few years after that was the original Top Gun release. I'll tell you why. I think we're in a Top Gun moment here, but please continue.
0: Well, we're in a Top Gun moment. And, you know, it's funny, we get cast, and I think we get labeled as always being dour, negative. But I will tell you, and you've tweeted some things out, and I really want to drill down a bit, that you're starting to get a little more constructive. I don't think by any stretch you think things are over, but you're starting to see things that are piquing your curiosity. And you've been
1: quite active on the Twitter recently as well. I wouldn't say overly active, but I try to pick my spots. But dare I be bullish, I realize now what it must be like on the other side to be bearish and then have all the people that are positive come at you. I tried to be constructive, as we say. And on Monday afternoon, just before the close, just watching the action, I was watching all the meme stocks, and all the shit stocks trade down. And some of the quality was the day of the Jake Morgan update that they gave on their analyst day. And I saw that trade and some other names were up. Walmart started to regain footing, nothing major. And when you start to see rallies like that in quality names, you start to be a little bit more encouraged when you don't see the shit names rally. And that's exactly what happened in 2000 and 2001. And then the next day we opened up really down. And then we started to come back towards the end of the day. And once again, it was quality that led us now yesterday. And even today we can talk about it. Some of the crap has started to rise back to the top again. So I don't think it's as quality of a rally as it might appear, but certainly things have gained a little bit of footing. And so I just made a comment and the people came at me. Maybe you don't understand that JP Morgan has all these derivative losses everywhere. I'm like, I understand the banks, my man. I get it. So anyway, just funny to see how dare I come out and step my foot into any type of bullishness.
0: I've learned it over the years. That when you can piss off everybody at the same time, which I somehow managed to do, I think that suggests you're doing it right. And again, everybody wants to cast you. And when they see a guy like Danny Moses turning bullish, if they're still bearish, they're like, how dare you? And it doesn't fit their dogma. And I'm not suggesting it's anybody here in this audience for on the tape, but I know that it happens out there as well. Everybody feels you're in this foxhole together with them. And what I'll tell you, folks, is I'm more than happy to be in the foxholes. But when I see things change, trading is fluid. The markets are fluid. Things do change. I'll say this. I don't think this sell-off that we're in the midst of is over by any stretch of the imagination. But when I see an S&P 500 that traded down, To 3810. You know, Danny, I've been talking about 3750 seemingly since the fall. What I like to say is that's close enough for government work. And now it's incumbent upon the bears to prove themselves. And they can't seem to be able to do it at these levels. I think you're probably going to get one of these, again, face ripping rallies, especially as we find ourselves into a long weekend, holiday shortened week next week. Markets tend to sort of levitate in that environment. And I think that's exactly what we're about to see. Guy, please don't categorize me as bullish. God
1: forbid. No, 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 no. no. But you understand what I'm saying. I mean, even if there's not a hint of bearishness for you, that is bullish. Here's what it comes down to. And I'll go back to my Top Gun reference here since Top Gun Maverick is coming out this week and probably the first movie that I will want to see in the theater in, in I don't even know how many years. Anyway, the whole idea of this soft landing. I think of Cougar almost got shot by the MiG trying to bring in the plane on the aircraft carrier. And the way he landed that thing, I don't think there's a, quote, soft landing here. I think people want to believe, I think this rally, this follow through today is a little bit about the soft landing with the Fed minutes they came out, look back weeks ago, and you can cherry pick what you want from it. But we can pick those apart now if you would like. But I think people are hopeful that you're getting this, oh, maybe the Fed's going to only go 50 one more time. And maybe that's the case. I don't know. But I do not believe there is. they can orchestrate a soft landing here. But that is what I think is going on in the markets right now.
0: Well, what's interesting is Cougar got spooked by that MiG pilot who lasered in on him, had him in his crosshairs, as they say. Obviously, he wasn't going to shoot. He was just trying to scare him. Tom Cruise knew that intuitively, but Cougar didn't. I will tell you, Tim Robbins, who played his rear in the beginning of the movie, that's what they call it. He obviously saw that Cougar was spooked. Tom Cruise, much to his credit, came back about to land his plane on the carrier, said, you know what? I got to go back and see what's up with Cougar. They flew in together. Amanda Diaz doesn't know this because she's never seen the movie. He was able to land the plane, Cougar, but I got to tell you something. It was pretty scary getting there back on deck, and I think that's what you're saying. Maybe they will land this plane at some point, but getting it onto the hard deck, as they say, is going to be really problematic.
1: Yeah, I think Tim Robbins' quote was, we got a little problem up here, Mav, that MIG really screwed him up, and I think this market has really screwed people up. And One more Top Gun reference, and then I'll be done with this for the week. But the other quote from Stinger is your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash. I'll just give that to Elon Musk for now. We can move on from there, though, guy.
0: I want to talk about that. But, you know, in terms of the Fed minutes and I have you, it's just you and I here, which is great. Just you and I, just you and I. That's a nice job. By you. Thank you. You probably haven't thought of April Wine in 40 years, but that's neither here nor now. No, you look at the Fed minutes and you're actually one of these people that actually read the Fed minutes and you go through and they're actually doing some things that I think they should be doing. But again, it's not going to be a straight line to getting there. And one of them is mortgage-backed securities.
1: So maybe you can speak to that. That's exactly right. And don't think that Wall Street doesn't always know what's coming. Why were mortgage-backed securities widening out? Why were the spreads on mortgages or mortgage rates, let's just keep it simple, going up so much, much higher than what U.S. Treasuries were? We know they've been a buyer of these assets. So the anticipation of them not being there made them widen a little bit and credit got a little bit worse. But I'm not shocked to see that news considering what we've seen with mortgage rates go. So effectively, what they're saying is they're going to start to basically roll off 30 billion in treasuries and 17 and in mortgage-backed securities starting June 1 and then accelerate in September. But they went out of their way to make the comment, hey, guess what? We may just sell some mortgage-backed securities also on top of that. And the reason that would be, Guy, is because rates have moved so high that prepayments of these mortgages have slowed. And the only way to potentially unwind, I think, a lot of that on their balance sheet is to actually outright sell them. So I think that may have led to some of these mortgage rates moving higher. And now with Treasury settled in here, we're in this, as you call it, into the holiday weekend, shortened week next week, this little bit euphoria. OK, 10 years hanging out around 275, two years steadied here at 245. That's a 30 BIP. In the world of what we've seen, that's pretty steep. That's, quote, normal for now. Things are just feeling OK to dip your toe back in the water. And that could last a little bit longer. We can go into some of these company-specific issues. But I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. So that was my takeaway. They're obviously going 50 basis points. They have to maintain credibility. And I think then the Atlanta Fed, Bostic, came out and basically made a comment that, hey, maybe we'll go 50-50 these next two and then take a deep breath and look. And I think they're as shocked as anybody that we are starting to see slowdowns already occurring, whether they were already occurring without the Fed. The Fed's only gone 75 basis points. So maybe things do come down a little bit sooner, so.
0: Well, I know you talked about it last week, but I think in terms of Walmart and Target specifically, and again, this is just my opinion, I think they were just an operational thing from both of those retailers. They just operated extraordinarily poorly. And what I said on Fast Money after the Walmart earnings release, I said, Doug McMillan will never admit that the CEO of Walmart, but he is praying that Target comes out and says something similar tomorrow because then at least they're sort of in the foxhole together using that analogy from earlier. And that's exactly what happened. But with that said, just operationally, they couldn't have done much worse. So I think that's Walmart target specific because this week we saw completely different quarters out of names like Dollar Tree and Dollar Gen. So it's not an indictment on the consumer yet, but I do think that's coming. And to your point, when you see 30-year mortgage rates get doubled in the course of a month, month and a half. I mean, there's nothing normal about that. And I'll say this as well, because you've mentioned this. People think that 10-year yields going lower is somehow bullish, maybe to a point, but it's going to cross over from being bullish to being extraordinarily bearish. And one thing that I've been saying on market call here on the tape is there's going to be a flight to quality in the form of bonds, which are going to take yields lower as this market continues to lose its footing. And that, my friend, is not
1: bullish. No, it's not. But like I said, I think it's a deep breath moment, a reset that's been going on. But I want to talk about another retailer which came out, which I think is really interesting, which is Macy's. So I think after the anticipation, after what we saw to your point in the Walmarts and the Targets and the Kohl's of the world, there are very low expectations to what Macy's was going to do. And let's go back several months ago. We talked about Macy's when it made its run from 20 to 37 on what was a cleanup of inventory, but lack thereof of inventory and an okay quarter. But we all agreed it overshot. Well, It retraced all of that back to below 20. I think it was under 18 before today. And now we see the quarter come out, but the quarter was actually very telling. So people are actually going out into the malls or into the stores more. Okay, one. Two, tourism came back. So they said that a lot of visitors from Europe and Latin America that came into the flagship stores. Three, the segment for Bloomingdale's for Macy's was very strong, so the high-end consumer was good. Four, they had a huge rapid growth in their credit card division. What do I mean? People probably came into the store for the first time in a long time, saw this, I can get 20% off when I sign up now, and they went and did it. That's great for short term. We'll talk about what that might mean for long term, but piece back that quarter, they had a huge earnings boost, not huge, but 10%, I want to say, just from their credit card division. No bad debt per se, so that's good, but just growth, I think, from volume from there. And then the categories of which they had, they have a lot of inventory now, but what they said was they're seeing people come in to buy leisure wear or dressing up for weddings or traveling. And that's consistent with what's out there. So I give them credit, great quarter. And the other thing is that they cleaned up their balance sheet, which is what you want to see. We talked about before, can you own companies that have a lot of debt? Well, they extended their maturities five years. So good on them, buyback. So they got their shit and the house in order, so to speak. But it was really interesting because the expectations I think had gotten so low. And I'll close this with, This is why there's always buys out there. And I had been paying attention to Macy's, but had it gotten to 17, 18, the risk reward was probably to be long into that print. I beg people, read the quarters and look, you get great information out of these things. So just to round it out on Macy's on that in general, listen, they made the revenue number, they beat the earnings number, the comp sales were okay. Like I mentioned, they beat the earnings number, I think because the credit card margins are so high. But anyway, leave it at that. But it just goes to show that you can't throw everything into one ETF that has retail in it and not look at these names individually.
0: No. And I think you're exactly right. And it's interesting. The market took Macy's down, I think, exactly to the levels you talked about. I think it got it down to almost 16 bucks or maybe a little below 16, probably in the wake of Target and Walmart. People were saying, you know what, we got to get out of these retailers. Look at the disaster that Target and Walmart is. But then you saw what Nordstrom said to your point about Macy's. And again, this is after the fact, a posteriori, as they say. But if you go back and look at Nordstrom's, this quarter out of Macy's, makes a lot of sense. I'll say this as well. The current levels we find ourselves at in Macy's, this $23 level, takes us back to where? Beginning of May. So it's extraordinary how you go from 23 to 16, back to 23, all in the course of a few weeks. Again, not in my opinion, a symbol of a pretty healthy market, Danny.
1: Yeah. And just to round that out, it's evident that e-commerce sales growth rate were slowing. Macy's, I think, does about a third of their business online. It did grow a little bit, but they're benefiting from people actually going into the store. So that confirms what's happening with Amazon, certainly what we saw on e-commerce.
0: There are other things that are encouraging as well. Again, not to pan ourselves in a certain corner, not to be dogmatic. Broadcom VMware. Now, listen, I'll say this about Broadcom or Avago, whatever they call the company now. The symbol there is AVGO they're a serial acquirer over the years. You go back and look at all the acquisitions they've made. So it's not out of the ordinary. But in this environment, for them to be a deal like this or to talk about a deal like this for VMware, I think that's going to quell some of the fears that some of these market participants had. Because I got to tell you something, if they didn't have visibility or if they didn't have some degree of confidence, you never would have heard anything
1: like this. Listen, to see a $61 billion deal out there one of the larger deals we've seen recently, other than the fake Twitter thing that's been going on with Tesla. And listen, it's a strategic deal, hardware meets software and all that. I'm kind of shocked, actually. I'm sure that the ARBs are already in there, but it is trading at a pretty good discount to the announcement, whether they believe it will be blocked by the government or whatever. But there's a shop in there, I think, for 40 or 50 days that VMware has the right to go potentially find another suitor. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but certainly in the era of trying to find good longs out there, if anyone thinks that deal's gonna close, I believe it's a pretty good spread. But again, between the European regulators and US regulators, I'm sure it'll get hung up. I'm not looking to exercise
0: you ahead of a holiday weekend, but I'll do it anyway. What's interesting about Tesla, and I'm bringing it up because we have to bring it up. And again, I said this on Fast Money the night they reported. I said, the quarter you just saw out of Tesla, this is about a month and a half or so ago, is the quarter that bulls have been waiting for for the last three and a half years, all the metrics look really good. The stock, I think, closed that day around a thousand twenty-ish. I think in the aftermarket, and the next day it traded up to a thousand eighty. And what we said is, listen, this is probably what you've been waiting for. This is your opportunity to probably pare down. I only mention that because here's a stock that flirted with six hundred dollars this past week. That's a pretty significant move for a company of that magnitude. Now, I also bring it up because. All this Twitter nonsense is clearly top of mind. And I'm just trying to think if you can wrap your head around what's really going on here. I'm sure you and Dan talked about it last week, but it's worth bringing up again because the chapters continue to be written in this story.
1: Guy, as I said last quarter, I think that was the immaculate quarter. Not trying to be accusatory of anything that may be nefarious to the company, but almost too good to be true, if you catch my drift. This thing has never really traded on fundamentals. It trades on the belief of Elon Musk that he's going to produce in the future. And what's happened is he started to lose his brand, his brand, which is really what Tesla's all about at this point. And I tweeted it earlier in the week. I watched that New York Times documentary on Hulu last week. And for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, it's one of these documentaries you watch about a company like a Theranos on the Dropout or Fire Festival, where you believe as you're watching it, someone's put you in a time machine and this thing's already over. This thing's already bankrupt and gone. And I'm watching this thing in real time. This is still a six, 700000000000 billion company. And just to, what it was was about how you sell full self-driving when it doesn't exist. The people that have died, the belief that this product actually worked, the whole idea of gathering all this data, information out there that they can use for full self-driving later and all these gigabytes of information that they never could have even practically done. And then having these clips of Elon Musk on stage at various times where he's actually saying we'll have autonomous driving in a year. That's 16, then 17, then 18, then 19. So forget about the stock for a second. Just as a company and as a leader, I just don't get it anymore. So eventually this cult thing will fall apart and whether it becomes a fundamental story. And listen, guy, we'll go into some meme stocks in a second. But what's all happened on these meme stocks in general has been when they sell off, there is no fundamental reason to own them. And so that's what we're starting to see. I'll be at the last two days as things come back, short interest, having risen to a level, people think they finally got a shot at this thing and it's going down. Of course, it hasn't happened. But eventually, you got to buy this thing on fundamentals. If his brand keeps deteriorating, that's a lot lower from here.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And listen, you got to give credit again to Michael Burry, who was this time last year, or maybe it was June, July, but it was definitely around this time last year where he came out and basically started talking about his thesis for shorting the ARK ETF and for shorting, I believe, Tesla at the time as well. And it's extraordinary. Usually, and he will say it, he's early typically. Well, this time he was spot on. His timing could not have been better. You look at where the ARK ETF topped out around that same time. It's fascinating. I only bring that up again. It's got nothing to do with Kathy Wood, but yet again, you just see one by one these names that she has really hitched her wagon to just get taken out to the woodshed. And it's fascinating to watch how It's almost impossible to be as wrong in certain names as she's been. Now, three, four, five years from now, we might be singing a much different song, but we don't work under those time frames. We work in a much shorter duration, and it's just been extraordinary to watch real time what's been going on. And one of the things that I've said, and I'll say it here again, the only thing innovative about the ARC ETF are the guys that created the inverse ARC ETF, which I think is fascinating. Now, Danny Moses, have you ever been to Dublin, Ireland?
1: I have not. I have, and I was just very close to it because I was in Scotland. But yes, I have. It's a fantastic place.
0: I need to get myself to Ireland. Well, I mentioned that because there was a band that came out of Ireland, I want to say in the late 1960s, 1969 to be exact. Name of that band is Thin Lizzy. And one of the songs that they made popular, Danny, was The Boys Are Back in Town. I mentioned that because right before my very eyes, over the course of the last three weeks, GameStop, which had been left for dead around 80 bucks, has now rallied 50, five, 0 percent. So
1: clearly those boys are back in town. So it's funny. I track a lot of these names, as you know. I've been shorted at various times. No one will probably believe me, but I'm not shorted right now. I just actually bought some puts in it today. But it wasn't going down with the AMCs and the Carvanas and the Bed Bath and & Beyond. And there was a reason. So I called Porter Collins in the morning yesterday and I said, I'm just curious, what's your borrow rate on... GameStop if you're short. He looked it up. He goes, it's 92%. He hadn't looked. And I'm like, hmm. I started to go around Twitter sphere and I started to look. This was, I'm not going to say an orchestrated short squeeze, but the longs obviously called their stock. And for people out there, you can lend your stock out. So if you're long GameStop and you're getting paid a rate of 92% a year, if the stock stayed flat, you would make 92% in a year from just lending it out. I want to make people understand that, which is why it can't last for very long because everyone would be dumb not to lend out their stock. But here's what's interesting about this particular name. I started to think about it. What was the name that the SEC, all the documentaries that were made, that Rebecca Jarvis, Harford made, it was GameStop. The regulators are watching this name. So if I'm a broker and I'm Goldman Sachs or Jake Morgan or Morgan Stanley, that name is top of my list. Hey guys, be very careful. When you lend out this stock, you better make sure it's not a naked short. You better make sure that it's accounted for. So I believe combination of the prime brokers tightening the reins, and they should not lend out anything, just that name being watched i think that's what's adding to this fuel to the fire that's temporary in nature and they're going to be reporting earnings coming up here and I can't imagine that it's great it may not matter so yes guy this is a stock that's not trading on fundamentals just technicals and I'm watching it and I'm re-engaging here there another top Gun reference i am re-engaging math that's right
0: well if you recall I know Amanda Diaz by the way our crack producer along with Nick she has never seen top Gun i can't even tell you how problematic that is but Funny thing, Tom Cruise, Maverick did not want to engage. He saw that dogfight going on at the end of the movie and he was just not getting into the battle. And then he just kept saying, Talk to me, goose, talk to me, goose. And finally, I think the voice must have manifested itself in his head. He engaged, shot down a few MiGs, the rest is history. Kazansky goes on to be an admiral. Tom Cruise apparently goes on just to continue to be a fighter pilot. And I think that story will play itself out in the aforementioned movie, Maverick which comes out today, Friday, as you're listening to this. With that said, Danny, something that's sort of decoupled and is not engaged in anything now seems to be crypto. Why do I mention that? Because a lot of weird things going on in crypto. Obviously, the broader market sell-off, maybe that had something to do with the sell-off in crypto. I would submit, again, probably for the 50th time, that it's no coincidence that Bitcoin topped out right around the same time in November, when this Fed pivoted from being extraordinarily dovish to now fighting inflation. I don't think that's coincidence. So if this Fed were to blink, I think that's going to be the green light for crypto. The broader market, the S&P has gone up, it's gone down. We've had some mind numbing rallies. Crypto can't get out of its own way. I mentioned that because you've obviously taken notice that some decoupling is going on. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's happening right before our very eyes.
1: I think the retail-owned portion of crypto, so the non-diamond hands, has sold off. We had the Luna situation. We've had a lot of these other DeFi tokens blow up. There's been billions of dollars that has been eviscerated with no recourse for any of these investors. and That's permanent. So you've lost those people's ability to engage. What's interesting to me is I was always watching crypto as a proxy for just retail fervor, let's say, in the market, just on the margin. So It's interesting. We've had a nice market rally this week and Bitcoin, I never had to read those charts because it's a continuous 24 hour crap that goes on. So under 28,000, we're back above 29. But you would think with this rally off of the lows that we've had in this market that without looking, you would have said Bitcoin's probably at 33 or 34,000 and Ethereum's at 22 or 2300. That's just not the case. So I feel like if I'm looking at the market overall, another constructive sign, forget about crypto for a second. I think you don't want the stock market necessarily tied to crypto. There's certain names like MicroStrategy, which won't ever escape that correlation. But yeah, so that's what I was watching. And so I think that actually is another healthy sign for equity investors, if that makes sense.
0: No question about it. I mean, I do think that is probably an encouraging sign without question. And here we are trying to bring up some other encouraging signs. And I'll say this, whether you like it or not, the financials have bounced. And maybe the sell-off we saw in financials, just in terms of a trade, gives you enough runway to be in these things for the next few weeks. I will say this. I do think there's another leg lower in the broader market. I've been pretty steadfast there. 37.50 first stop. We got down to 38.10. I thought we bounced. We're bouncing. But I think the overshoot will take the form of 3,400 to 3,500. By the way, levels that David Tepper has talked about as being interesting if and when they get there. I'll mention this, though, because it's important. Porter and Vinny have done an extraordinary job. They were on this early. You were as well. But energy continues to be a story. And I mention energy because it's clear when you look at the data here in the United States that things are slowing down. This is not political. Just reading the tea leaves, things are slowing down. One would think, given the huge rise we've seen in the commodity, that would take some of the wind out of the sails, not least of which, obviously, the zero COVID policy in China should also be a tremendous headwind and it's not. That to me is a little concerning. There's something going on in the energy market, specifically crude oil, natural gas, heating oil, all the products that are concerning. Again, it's not out of control yet. As we sit here, WTI is about $110-ish, gotten off the mat from that $93 level. But I still think energy is in play here. And at a certain point, Danny, and I think you may agree with me, it'll be good for the market until it's not. At what point do we find ourselves there?
1: If you want to make a play that this is going to be a soft landing in this economy, the Fed's going to thread the needle, then you got to be bullish on energy because that's basically saying that the consumer is not going to go by the wayside and you're going to be flying on planes and still here. So I think it's still probably underowned. People are going to have to accept the fact that you're going to, have to put a lot of capex into this industry before you can solve some of these issues or alternative forms of energy out there. So I still think there's room to go here. And you start to look at some of these names and a Peabody and things like this and you start to realize where these things trade. Every day that goes by that energy stays higher, natural gas stays higher, is a new input day into an earnings model of what these stocks are going to look like. And it just becomes, you can ignore it for a while, but then you can't. So I think it's probably these things are a must-own at some percentage in your portfolio.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And listen, I would submit that crude oil can trade sideways now for the next few months and sideways being anywhere between 105 and 110 for lack of a better in WTI. And these stocks can continue just to sort of levitate On the back of that, any increase in the price is obviously going to create more of a tailwind. But even again, if the commodity goes sideways, even slightly lower, these energy stocks can continue to go higher.
1: Yeah, that. And while Dan's not on this thing, we can talk about gold a little bit. But again, gold to me, risk reward is also it's acting fine. It's not incredible. It's not what you want to own on days like today where the market's ripping, but it's held its own here. And I think the geopolitical stuff guy that we're seeing more stuff, we said this was going to happen out of China with Taiwan and upon the visit over there, Russia Ukraine's still a disaster. It's just in the back of the news pages for right now. But that's an ongoing issue. Whole nother podcast of where the rubles trading and all that crap. But there's still issues and that always leads me to own resources. And one of those resources or commodities would be gold.
0: I'm with you. I will ask this question as we get out of here. What does Danny Moses do on a holiday weekend? I would submit again Those Sunday late afternoons of a three-day weekend, there's almost nothing better. What will you find yourself doing this weekend?
1: I'm easy like Sunday morning, yeah. That's what I like to do. But yes, I will be playing some golf. I will be drinking some beverages. I will be hanging out with some friends and family. My boys are back in town for a period of time post-college, so they're here. We're going to hang out. I'm just looking for a relaxing weekend. And if this market closes like this and then tomorrow, I'm sure that the restaurants in Nantucket and the Hamptons, everybody are gearing up because people are going to be a lot more positive going into the weekend. So I'm just going to enjoy some R&R. So how about you, Guy?
0: Similar. We will be hopefully just sort of putzing around the house, doing a little gardening, which I love to do. Getting my hands into the earth is always something cathartic about that for me. Maybe it's my Italian roots or maybe it's my Sicilian roots. I'm not sure, but I'm sure folks take something away from this saying, wait a second, Danny Moses and Guy Adami, sons, Dan Nathan, were actually extraordinarily constructive this weekend. And hopefully they're taking some solace from that as well, Danny.
1: Yeah. And like you, Dan won't listen to this podcast, so you can tell him anything you want to. You can say anything about him that you want. So love you, Dan. Everything's good over the pond there. When we come back,
0: the man that holds just about every senior title imaginable at the veritable firm Morgan Stanley, one Mike Wilson, will join us on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Mike Wilson is the chief investment officer and chief U.S. equity strategist for Morgan Stanley. As CIO and chair of the Global Investment Committee, Mike is responsible for all investment and asset allocation advice provided to the firm retail client assets. Over the past 30 years, Mike has held various roles within the firm.
2: Mike Wilson, welcome to On The Tape. Guy and I get to talk to you quite frequently on CNBC's Fast Money, but you and I go way back. You and I got to know each other when you were, I think you were leading tech sales at Morgan Stanley. This was probably in the lead up to the top in the market in 2000, but also throughout the dot-com implosion. The timing, I think, of what's going on over the last year and a half and the similarities, you hear a lot of that. Talk to us a little bit about that because you and I were talking about macro, we were talking about tech stocks. And I got to tell you, although it become consensus that it feels very similar to the after 2000 period, it really does feel like that. Talk to us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I love being on your show and Fast Money, but this is a chance to maybe spread our wings a little bit and talk about some other topics, which is nice to do as opposed to the sound bites. And I agree, there are definitely similarities to the late 90s. We grew up in that era together. I would say the similarities are that we've definitely had some malinvestment. I would say we're already seeing some malinvestment pre-COVID. Going into COVID, we were actually looking for a recession in 2020 before the pandemic hit. And then, of course, you got the pandemic, And what it did was it pulled forward even more demand on top of a cycle that was already extended for technology capital spending. So we've used this analogy, actually, which is not that popular with people, but we think that COVID was almost like Y2K. You kind of had a strong cycle. And then in 99, you had this final burst where you just did a bunch of really dumb stuff. And then, of course, you had payback. And what's remarkable, I mean, you guys know, like over a year ago, we were talking about this payback in demand. People said it was just a few companies. We're like, no, this is going to be really broad. And now the markets have figured that out. What I find interesting about this cycle, 99, 2000, or even a one, when it kind of started cratering, people knew it was crazy. And so when it started to unravel, people were like, yeah, this is going to be bad because we had this bubble in internet spending. What's been surprising to me this time is that a lot of technology investors don't think there was that much of a overspending cycle. right? They think that the derating that's happened in the last six months is really more just about the Fed. And that's part of it, of course, because taking away the easy money, I mean, you have to derate these things. But I don't think there's an appreciation yet for how much of an overhang remains for this payback in spending. And I think the number of companies that were created in this period that are private and public now, and just the consolidation going out of business sales that are going to have to happen over the next six to 12 months. So that's the next six to 12 months, which is this realization that growth is going to disappoint. There's going to be some huge winners just like coming out of that period. I say on the positive side, I don't think the bubble is quite as big as it was back then. And back then, as you know, it was funded with debt. So a lot of the telecom companies borrowed money uh, on their balance sheet to do this spending. Of course, they went bankrupt. This time, it's just a bunch of equity capital that will just evaporate. So there shouldn't be as big of an overhang in that regard. And of course, we still need to do technology spending to get out of this inflationary problem that we have. So I think it rhymes in a lot of ways. I don't think it'll be as long-lasting this time. But obviously, the carnage in terms of stock prices and capital destruction could be bigger because obviously, it's just the market's bigger today.
2: Well, it feels it's already been much bigger. Look at the name like PayPal, which at one point last year had a larger market cap than Bank of America. And now it's down 80 some percent or so. I think, Michael, you made a really good point. You were cautious into the pandemic on the economy, on the U.S. economy. We had that great hiking cycle in the years that were leading up to it. The Fed saw the stock market sell off 20% in late 2018, they pivoted, there was a bit of some concern about global growth at the time. What was concerning you about 2019 and did we just kick the can down the road? Because I kinda wanna pull my hair out when I hear bulls talk about what a rip-roaring economy that we have right now, because all I can think about what was happening pre-pandemic, and the fact is that we had a the reversal in the economy and in the market after a black swan event in early 2020, but the economy is not strong without trillions of dollars of fiscal and monetary stimulus.
3: First of all, I think the economy was quite robust in really 17, 18. We had an earnings recession in 18, which led to that drawdown because we overstimulated the economy with tax cuts at the wrong time, but the economy was really healthy. The reason we were bearish going into 2020, though, is that all the signals that we look at, we were basically out of labor. Companies were now at a point where they were starting to cut costs and they were going to probably start firing people. All the signals that I've developed over 25 years were telling me recession was guaranteed in 2020 for the most part. We didn't know it would be a pandemic, would be the trigger. There's always something that tips you over the edge. I would argue, go back, not to belabor the point, but I would argue that, remember we had the credit crunch and the energy patch when oil prices collapsed in, I think it was February of 2020. That's when the credit markets kind of blew out. I think that alone would have tipped us into a normal recession. And then we would have had a more normal recession where we didn't have all this funny money. It would have been you know, the usual stimulus, but it would have been crazy with the pandemic. And we were actually fortunate. We caught the low on that pretty well. We actually were very bullish in 2020 and then half of 21 on the idea that this stimulus was going to generate this incredible operating earnings leverage. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, it even exceeded our expectations. Inflation is actually good until it's bad. And going back to your question, I think that COVID essentially wrecked the economy in many ways because obviously supply chains were disrupted probably permanently. Labor forces were essentially permanently disrupted when we sent people home for two years as you break it. And then we overstimulate on the demand side. People make the case, how did COVID add value to the economy? It didn't. It destroyed value, which is why we've been pretty adamant about the market going back to pre-COVID levels. we got to go back to the starting point. And then we'll go forward, we'll, have a, we'll probably have a normal recession, kind of cleanse the yard a little bit, and then we can have a more normal recovery. And that's going to take some time.
0: We're going to get into your bear case, your base case, and the bull case in terms of levels and stuff. But for you, Shakespeare fan, Henry Fourth fans, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And you sit on top as chief investment officer, almost two and a half trillion dollars worth of assets at Morgan Stanley. It's a remarkable number when you think about it but I'm sure you obviously have a pretty robust team with you as well. Can you speak to how that day-to-day work goes? Because your work is incredible, but it's obviously a team of people helping you along the way.
3: I do wear two hats here. I'm a U.S. equity strategist. This is where most people know me in the public light. We talk about that on your show and the media. Everybody wants to know what the S&P 500 is doing. But my other hat, which is the hat I wear with a lot more care, is I'm looking after, it's actually $4 trillion of retail assets and acting as a fiduciary to guide asset allocation. And that team is quite large. I run the investment committee that essentially does the asset allocation. And then we have a huge team that does evaluations of individual managers and products that we can allocate to when we decide what we want to do. I would say I still spend probably 75%, 80% of my time thinking about U.S. equity markets because that's where the demand is from clients on a day-to-day basis. But I spend probably 75%, 80% of my thought process thinking about how can I really add value to these accounts that I have fiduciary responsibility to. So it's an interesting role. It's unique on Wall Street because most strategists aren't running money at the same time. I sit on both sides of the Morgan Stanley franchise. I feel fortunate to have access to a lot of great people that work with me. And more importantly, I have access to clients on both sides. So I can kind of hear everything that's going on out there, which gives me a little bit of an advantage, I think.
2: Yeah, and I would say just given the uniqueness of that role, you're not just a marketing person, which a lot of those strategists tend to be. You're doing some deep qualitative work, some deep quant work, but the fact that you're actually using your work to help inform allocations on that client capital, I think is really interesting. So Guy just mentioned it, let's talk about it. You had a note out earlier this week, talking about a bear case of 3350 in the S&P 500, 3900 is your base case. We're basically right there, right now. And that would be the S&P down close to 16, 17% on the year. And then your bull case is 4450, which is well below the all time high made just around 4,800 in the first week of this year. Give us a sense of like how you're thinking about this. Guy and I, we've been talking about this for months and months. And really, the fact is that the S&P consensus for year-over-year earnings growth is like 10%, and it hasn't really budged a whole heck of a lot. I think you've mentioned on the show, we've asked you the question, it probably ends up being given what we know about inflation, what we know about China being locked down, what we know about the war in Europe and where they're likely to end up in a recession. Our consumer interest rate policy here, high single digits seems unlikely for earnings growth, maybe mid single digits, but it's likely somewhere between three to 5%. You throw a 16, 17 multiple on that, and that gets you somewhere between your bear and your base case. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, so just to be clear, those targets are 12 months forward. So it's basically May of 2023. So obviously, that's a long way from today. Our base case is basically 0% price appreciation. It's not very exciting. And the bear case is down another 15, 16% a year from now. That's a pretty bad outcome. So let's just talk about that. Our base case scenario, the fire and ice call that became popular, people followed, the fire part of that's played out, right? The Fed is on the job now. They probably actually guided to more hikes than they're going to be able to achieve. So rates are probably already topped and the multiple destruction has happened for the most part. The problem now, though, is that we have an earnings risk, right? That's the ice. And that's really starting to play out now with Q1 earnings. Not to diverge too much, but probably the biggest change in the last six weeks is that the institutional clients I speak to, a lot of the growth managers have really pushed back on this idea about a growth slowdown until recently. So now... A lot of growth managers in the technology space are actually starting to acknowledge that, you know what, actually there is going to be some earnings risk here. That's a real sea change. And I think that's why the market's become heavier. We're not seeing people willing to stand there and step in as much because they want to see the revisions happen to the downside. So our base case, going back to our own outlook, we think forward 12-month earnings growth will be basically zero. That's what our model tells us. It's been pretty good. It's not exact, but you know what I'm saying. The problem, though, is that doesn't assume any economic recession. That's just margin degradation, payback in demand, headwinds from the Fed tightening. It's already happened. And so that gets you to sort of no growth over the next 12 months. And we have the same multiple. So we think there's going to be an overshoot this summer to the downside as the multiple gets in front of these earnings cuts. And we've put out 14, 14 and a half times with a 400 base point equity risk premium, real rates at 275 fine that gets you to 3,400. So that 3,400 number, how I work, I'm maybe a little different. Than other, I get kind of regimented on these frameworks. I don't flip-flop a whole lot. 3,400 is the number for me sometime in the next two to three months as the numbers come down or the multiple gets in front of that. At that point, I probably would get more bullish on the index because then you have upside to that base case. Here's where it gets tricky. Don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But our bear case does assume a recession. And I think the next 12 months, economists are probably like in the 35% chance. I'm probably in the north of 50% chance. We can debate that as our own personal view. That would obviously lead to a much more damaging earnings outlook. Earnings probably got to come down to like 200 bucks, forward 12-month basis, maybe 210. And then you put a 15 multiple on that because you always overshoot, it's like three grand. That's the recession scenario. I don't know How that's going to play out. Here's the problem, guys. I mean, it's going to be really hard to have a soft landing, in my view, from a market's standpoint, because a recession in the next two years is highly, highly likely. And so the market's not going to really give the benefit of the doubt and do like a 2019 where we have that one more year of time because everything's happening so much faster. That's really the trick here. So you're just sort of marching. The faster the recession happens, the more bullish I get on a 12-month basis. That sounds crazy, I know. But think about this way. If you have the recession now, by the time you get 12 months from today, you'll actually be in a full-blown recovery. The market can look forward and get excited. Until you cleanse it, it's going to be hard to get that multiple back. And it's going to be hard to get excited about where the growth trajectory lies.
0: Mike, it's interesting. People ask me, and I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to be. I'm not smart enough to be. But people ask all the time, are we in a recession? Are we going into a recession? And my answer typically is, and maybe I'm wrong to answer this way, but what changes if we are in one or what changes if it happens? In other words, we could be in the midst of one now. I'm not sure, but people hear the word and then all of a sudden the label sticks What changes in corporate America if we're in one or if we're about to be in one? Does that make sense, that question? Because, you know, I struggle with it.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the right question, because in the absence of a recession, nothing changes, which means what? Margins continue to erode. Okay, companies don't really bite the bullet. And most importantly, policy doesn't really change. The Fed keeps going and you don't really get any fiscal stimulus because obviously you're not going to do that if you're still inflationary, you don't have a recession. By the way, a recession can only be defined one way. Okay, There's all this gobbledygook about what a recession is. The only thing that matters is labor markets. So you can't have a recession unless unemployment goes up by a couple hundred basis points. So what's going to change, guy, is in a recession, what's going to happen is what are companies going to do? They're going to fire people. Now, I'm a humanitarian like anybody else, but I'm also a markets guy. I love that as a markets guy. Yeah, fire people. That's, by the way, so private companies are doing that because their VCs are telling them to fire people because they're going into a slowdown. So what you want to see as an investor is you want to see companies taking action that can make a difference on margin. You want to see them protecting margins. And then on the policy side, obviously the Fed would stop if you have the labor cycle, that, that's their other mandate. And you might have some hope of, doing some real fiscal that can be helpful, not sending checks out to people, but maybe infrastructure bill and things that can get bipartisan support. Maybe there's a change in Congress with a recession, which I think the market would like a lot better now because Republicans are better than Democrats, but because nobody likes one party controlling both houses.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. So the label or the name puts things in motion. I totally get it. So let's play it out a little bit from there. We could be in the midst of one, to your point. We might be entering one at a certain point. I don't know, but what I'll say is The flip side of that coin is obviously inflation that we talk about almost every day. And energy seems to be the top of the food chain in terms of what's going on. And that is sticky as hell. And it's every opportunity to sell off. It hasn't done it. If China were to back away from the zero COVID, my sense is that only would be bullish for energy. So how do you reconcile that portion of this entire thing?
3: Well, I mean, it's interesting. There's usually every other expansion, energy the expansion ends with a spike in oil. You can go back and look at timing, because oil at 110, even, but if oil were to go to 130, 140, you can almost guarantee a consumer recession at that point. It's already overbearing on households. And so any further eruption in oil prices, I think, sent us over the cliff. So in those cycles, go back to 08, remember 08, where there was a financial crisis going on. It really started in 06. It took like two years. It seemed like it took forever banks were horrendous in 07, big write-downs, Bear Stearns went out in early 08, and then things were teetering, but oil in the summer of 08 went to like 150. And energy stocks and material stocks and met coal, you're clearly heading towards some sort of calamity, but oil stocks held up until the very end. And I think that could be what happens this time, is that energy, materials, and things that have benefited from this inflationary cycle actually end up being relative outperformers until the end, and then they get crushed. if there's a recession, they get crashed.
2: Last week, I think we had thought we were through the bulk of S&P 500 earnings for that Q1 period. And then we got to the retailers and there was a couple bombs dropped, Walmart and Target. And it was interesting because part of the narrative with some disappointments prior to that in this earnings cycle had been that consumer demand, corporate demand, the demand side was good. It was disruption in supply chains. It was some of the effects of inflation. It was the fact that China is still locked down. We have a shooting war in Europe and that's kind of creating some weird supply-demand dynamics. Well, all of a sudden, it seems pretty clear to me. And then going back to 2008 or going back to 2000, demand's there until it's not. And then it becomes this really difficult cycle to break in a way. And so going back to that point about recession too. So if companies have to defend their margins because they've spent this period of overbuilding and wage inflation is hurting them, at some point that demand falls off a cliff. And I think what Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target said about the changing behavior of consumers was really important. So my question to you now is that are we about to see that in corporate spending budgets, big corporates, and you just mentioned private companies are being asked to rationalize and focus on profitability, but is it all going to happen all at once? And then we're literally going to be finding ourselves in this demand spiral lower.
3: That's how it always happens, meaning that's why recessions are so hard to predict in advance, because it's like a light switch just goes off, right? It just stops. And it usually coincides with the negative payroll number or two. And then, you know, it's over because once it starts and it just cascades quickly. So timing it is very difficult. Like I said, we're going into 2020. We thought that light switch was about ready to go off. And then we obviously had the pandemic and that was the light switch. I mean, that was an easy one. But the idea is that the light switch isn't always so obvious. It could be a couple of earnings reports by big employers, like you just mentioned, It can be a oil spike to 150. All of a sudden, that's the thing that tips the consumer over. And they just say, you know what? The kitchen household is like, no more spending on anything, people. We should shut it down. Credit cards go in the drawer. It's things like that that really it does happen all of a sudden. One thing, Dan and I talked about this going back in the tech world, is something called double ordering. It's funny. I was talking about this on your show last fall I'm always a little bit early with this stuff, but I'm like, and Dan, you picked up on it immediately. You're like, yeah, I mean, of course there's double ordering going on when there's supply shortages and companies were continually saying, you know, demand is fine, but it's just, if we had the supply. I'm like, okay, you know, that's the problem. The book, the bill's like two, there's definitely garbage orders in the book and they're triple ordering. And then all of a sudden they get the supply they go, Holy smokes. It's like getting an IPO and you get more shares than you think and the orders cancel. And I think we're right there. Right now, that's why we've been talking about this inventory thing for six months. We said, look, there's going to be an inventory glut. And I saw those numbers last week. Holy smokes. I mean, that was even worse than we were thinking. That's going on everywhere. It's not just with retail. It's going on in like washing machines and lumber and semiconductors and autos. It's everywhere. That's the next shoe to drop. Could it be next week? Yeah. Could it be in September? Maybe. Could it take six to 12 more months? I doubt it. I think it's sooner rather than later.
2: I did pick up on that. I remember you saying that. seems like last fall or so. And again, early, as my lacrosse coach used to say, is on time, but early in the markets can be painful. I really think that an Apple... Tesla, these are companies that are very unique because not only are they relying on supply chains in China, they're relying on the consumer demand from those sorts of places. They've managed the supply chain issues well, if you look at their last couple quarters, but they've also indicated to some degree that there are continued headwinds here. And I think that's the next shoe to drop. So when I look at what's gone on in the markets over the last five or six months or so, we had this situation where there are hundreds of stocks they're down 50, 60, 70%. But then right up until about the start of this year, the S&P 500 was still partying. It made a new high the first week of the year. And we've been talking about this concentration. And I just think that one of the things that might put us closer to a bottom than closer to the start of this thing is a meaningful downgrade to guidance of an Apple or a Microsoft or a Tesla. Just thoughts on that. And do you think that there's a likelihood that we could see another couple pre-announcements like we saw from Snap? And again, that might be company specific, or it might be a canary in the coal mine. This is a 5 Billion dollar revenue company. So it's not really that important. Are we likely to see some big downgrades or pre announcements to guys before Q2 ends? Look,
3: first of all, the bear market will not be over until the darlings basically cut numbers at least once. I'm not going to talk about specific stocks on this call, but like we all know what they are. And it's not just in the tech space, it's all over the market. There's still some winners out there hanging on. And like that's what makes the low is that you get the bad news as I like to say, the engraved invitations are mailed out, and then people can say, okay, we cut the numbers, and then the market quickly prices in, and then you're usually buying it. There's a little action in today's market. One of the retailers missed numbers badly. Stock actually rallied on that. You want to see that type of activity more broadly. I think that's a one-off. Am I calling the low today? That's for sure. But I think we need to see that type of activity where we go through a barrage of earnings cuts across all sectors and some of the darlings, especially. And then the stocks react positively. We're a long way from that.
0: One of the things I've been concerned about, Mike, and I don't know if it's justified or not, and I've been saying this for the last couple of years, is the volatility in the bond market. I've suggested again, whether correctly or not, that U.S. 10-year, 20-year, 30-year yields, the security around them should be the most liquid asset in the world. They're trading like $150 million biotech stocks, and it doesn't make a lot of sense that we see 10 to 15 basis point move almost daily. Should that be a concern, or am I just sort of making a lot out of nothing?
3: No, I mean, that was the first part of our thesis for this year, was that the bond market was mispriced, cost of capital was too low, the volatility in the bond market has been literally off the charts, as you mentioned, and that's just not healthy, so why is that happening? It's happening because the Fed is pivoting in a way that nobody expected two years ago. They've never done in most of our careers. Jay is talking like Paul Volcker, it's like, whoa, who's Paul Volcker? Holy smokes, we're used to Ben Bernanke and Jenny Ellen. You know, where, where, where does this bad guy come in here? So yeah, it's a complete upheaval of the environment that we've existed in for a long time. Remember the height cycle when Bernanke from 04 to 07, it was like 25, 25, it was like very predictable. You know, this time it's like 50, 75, I don't know, we're going to do like PT. It's like hocus pocus almost, because they don't know. I'm not blaming the Fed or saying they stink. What I'm saying is, it's a very uncertain outcome for the economy, for inflation, and Fed policy reflects that. of course, then the bond market reflects that volatility, which means what? Valuations have to come down for risk assets. And that's really been the call this year where we were out on a limb was that the valuation was wrong. We feel better that the valuations right now, but the earnings now are too high.
2: Back in 2018, during that cycle, when they were on autopilot, I think that's the kind of phraseology that a lot of strategists use now. They just had their first 50 basis point hike since May of 2000. Fed funds, CME, Fed Watch tools, suggesting obviously 50 in June and 50 in July. I thought Bostick said maybe they take a pause after that. But my question is, how long does it take generally in these rate hiking cycles for that sort of hiking to slow the economy down? Because right now we're already seeing signs of longer term inflation expectations come down. But as long as we see, let's say, oil where it is, wage inflation where it is, disruption to supply chains, it might take longer than people think.
3: I think the Fed has already promised more. Then it's likely to be able to deliver, not because they're going to chicken out or they don't know what they're doing, but because, to your point, the bond market has already done the heavy lifting. And I'll just give you one easy example that everybody understands, which is mortgage rates, 30 year mortgage rates are up 70%, 70% since January. And that's why mortgage applications have plummeted, why the new home sales were very disappointing this week. I mean, new home sales are now back to the post COVID lows. Okay. There's one thing that's more determinant of economic growth, it's the housing market. And the housing market is going to really come to a halt in terms of transactions. Forget about price. Transactions, that's the velocity of the economy really slowing. So I think this stuff generally works with about a six-month lead time, maybe 12-month lead time. And we're already seeing the impact only four months lead time. And you could argue the Fed started tightening last fall with their jawboning. That really kicked in in January. So it's now, meaning the economic impact of their actions is being felt right now.
0: We're going to talk about what can go right because that's important. We get labeled sometimes, Dan and myself and Danny Moses, as sort of always being pessimistic or half empty. Maybe that's true or not. I'm not sure. But let me ask you this in terms of some of the things that are out there potentially on your radar screen, I think, in my opinion, China, Taiwan, has to be pretty high on that list. Do you factor that in at all? And let's just play it out f- for the sake of playing it out. If something were to happen there, what does it mean for the markets?
3: Our view is that we don't think anything's gonna happen there imminently. We don't have any great inside information, but there's enough going on around the world that it seems unlikely they wanna create another problem. It's unnecessary. I mean, there's you know, a little bit of saber rattling by the U.S. to say we're gonna defend Taiwan, but there's no urgency to do anything irrational if something were to happen there, like an invasion, that's not something going right. That would be catastrophic, I think, for the global economy, because semiconductors are effectively the new oil, even more important in many ways. So I don't think that's going to happen. It's not really on my list of things to be worried about right now. On the other side, I would say what could go right is maybe there's some sort of a stalemate in Ukraine. Maybe there's calmer minds relief here. And, um, that's something that I think could be good in the short term. I mean, it's still going to be a problem area for a while, but it's something short term we can look forward to.
2: Yeah. So on that side, I mean, listen, things feel pretty Bad right now, all around. We have a shooting war in Europe. We have large parts of China still locked down. Our country has a COVID wave. Things are just really not back to pre pandemic life that we knew it at the time. And we do have a slowing economy. We have interest rates that are rising. We have a stock market that, for the first time in a while, is down and doesn't really have. Tremendous prospects for going back up. You throw the housing thing in there too. the negative wealth effect from that from a consumer that's coming off this fiscal high right when they didn't have the ability to spend. It seems like we could be in this for a little bit. All that being said, Mike. Going back to where we started this conversation, I came into the markets in 1997. The dramatic run-up in the last five years of that decade was like nothing that anyone had ever seen in that time span. And then the next couple years of the unwind was probably equally as eye-popping. So here we are now. Forget the market crash in the beginning of 2020 because monetary and fiscal took care of that and then some weird dynamics of the pandemic. But right now, The way I'm looking at the destruction in equity value over the last year and a half with hundreds of stocks, there's got to be some gems out there, right? If you could take a long-term view, my view right now, and I've been saying it on our pod for I feel like a couple months now is Qs and twos, right? I want to buy the QQQ. I want to start layering into it. And I actually want to buy U.S. treasuries because I don't think yields are going meaningfully higher. I don't think they're going to be able to run off that balance sheet. I think that we're going to go back to this low rate environment once we get to the other side of this thing that we're on. So I think the leadership will be the Microsoft, the Apple, the Amazon and the Google the way it was in the last cycle. But then in the QQQ, the Nasdaq 100, you also get the benefit of dozens of stocks that have been more than cut in half. Many are down 80 percent. And some of them will once again be leaders in five to 10 years. So I'm just curious, is that barbell approach that I'm thinking about as I average into this with a longer
3: term view? Just to be clear, I mean, just to let people know, I'm not always a perma bear either. I'm actually quite bullish on nominal GDP growth. This is our whole 1940s analog we've been talking about for a while. And we're in a new structural regime. So I would disagree with you, Dan, is I don't think we're going back to the way it was. I think we're in a higher inflationary environment. It's going to be more volatile, but higher growth as well. The reason why these big tech companies did so well is because we were in a lower growth environment. They could deliver growth in that world and get a premium valuation because rates were lower. I don't think we're going back to that. That doesn't mean that some of those stocks can't work quite nicely. However, I do think the other side of the barbell, look, we're long rates right now because I think we're going into a slowdown, but that's a trade. to want to be clear about that. But I think the other side of the barbell is actually things in the economy that can benefit from real investment. One of the features of the economy in the last 15 years, post the tech bubble and really post GFC, is we've underinvested in just about everything except for servers to do TikTok videos. So what we need is we need real investment across the economy that assumes real risk that delivers productivity gains and a return on capital, right? The days of just... Borrowing money at zero and buying back your stock and doing MA and financial engineering, I think that's over. I really do. I think what we need is real investment to get people in better paying jobs, get the distribution of income through the wage channel, higher productivity, higher inflation too, which gives you higher nominal GDP growth. Now, maybe that means a little bit lower multiples, but you can grow through that once we get past this cyclical reset. I'm pretty confident that there will come a time in the next 12 months, I don't know if it's six, eight, nine, where I'm going to be probably bullish too early. And I'm going to be getting screamed at by certain hosts about how I'm irresponsible, just like they said the same thing in March and April of 2020. Not because I always get it right, but because as an investor, you have to think that way. You have to think about what are people not doing right now that is an opportunity. And so that's where I would challenge your thinking. I think what you said makes sense, but I think I would expand that to things in healthcare, investment, reshoring, what is that going to create? Investment, dual-pronged energy investment in traditional fossil fuels, as well as new energy. These types of programs, I think, are really going to carry the day. It's going to be a much broader, inclusive economy than what we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years.
0: You mentioned your outlook is for a year from now, so obviously May of 2023, and you put out those levels. They make a lot of sense to me. In terms of what can go right, what's the one thing that people are underestimating in terms of what can go right? Is it the U.S. consumer's balance sheet, their want to spend, the fact that maybe the leverage is not in the system like it was 12, 13 years ago? Like, what should we be looking for?
3: There's two things I would say. The first one is that, don't forget, the rest of the world hasn't even begun to recover from COVID yet. There's been no recovery in Asia, even in Europe, emerging markets, nothing. There's, Still a lot of people there, there's still a lot of income and they're going to want to recover from COVID. So that's something to look forward to, I think later this year, for sure. The other thing is that people always underestimate this. I don't want to sound like a hokey guy, but like, don't underestimate the United States' corporates and consumers' ability to pivot. Consumers are actually pretty smart. They're not dopes. They get it. Like They see opportunity, they're entrepreneurs, they take advantage of situations, they know they were on a bit of a gravy train. Maybe the last two still taking advantage of working from home. Okay, but eventually they get around to it and they say, "Okay, let's go now. It's go time." And then I would say corporations are even better at that. They will cut costs. They will invest at the right time and do things that are beneficial to the bottom line. The one thing I'm not optimistic on is government. Our government system is broken. This is not a comment about who's in power today. I'm saying both sides. It's just not working. And what would make me really optimistic is if government started working for the people. And I think we're in one of those moments where you see in the ratings, right? Government people are rated lower than used car salespeople. Nobody has any respect for people in government for obvious reasons. And so maybe it's time, right? Maybe, and that's another comparison to the 40s, by the way, where we're very polarized. And then we actually started doing some things collectively for the better good of the people, which is GI Bill, Marshall Plan, Superhighway Bill, et cetera.
2: It sounds like you came on this podcast to make an announcement. This seems like a platform. I think that we're breaking news here, Guy Dami and on the tape. Listen, Mike Wilson, I call you one of my oldest friends in the business. I learned a lot from you 20-some years ago, and I've just been in awe of your career at Morgan Stanley. I can't say it is a common occurrence to see someone spend the amount of time that you have at such an amazing firm like Morgan Stanley and have the role that you have after decades of being there. I'm just in awe. Guy and I really appreciate you, A, coming on the podcast, but also the ability that we have to chat with you and your transparency and coming on Fast Money and getting fast-fired. We get fast-fired every day, so we really appreciate you being here, man.
3: I appreciate you guys, too. I mean, I respect your work. You guys are definitely more balanced than most people, and the respect is mutual, so thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.